to the next community podcast. I am Angelo Luciani, and with me I have Laura Whalen. Hello. And from Tech Reckoning, John Mark Troyer. Hey, Angelo. Hey, Laura. Hi, guys. On today's show, we have Brandon Shell, who is a practice manager, data center technologies at Splunk. Yeah, Brandon is pretty amazing. I've known him for for many years. Um, I've seen him speak at dozens of live events, like uh, especially community events like Geek Speak, Bri Forum, Expert to Expert Virtualization in Europe. He's a real PowerShell and data automation guru, smartest guy I know in these areas. Yeah, great. He, he shed a lot of light on a lot of topics on today's show. Today, we, we sort of focus on big data, Splunk, and automation with PowerShell. A couple items that I like to highlight from the uh, interview to sort of brought back some memories at the same time, uh, some things that, that were interesting. One of the items he talked about was Uber Agent and Splunk. Uber Agent, something I've never actually heard of. For those that don't know, it's a data collection tool for Windows. And it's something that in the past, I think would have helped me and my sysadmin days where where users um, would at times complain about slow logon times, as well as when you start piling on group policy on top of group policy on top of group policy, it definitely slows, slows uh, login times down. And it, it looked like from looking at the website that, that this particular tool helps, would help give you an idea of how things are really performing, um, which I thought was interesting and which I thought would help help a lot on the desktop side for sure. I think it's also an interesting uh, third-party tool. Helica Klein uh, is an independent consultant and uh, makes this kind of cool agent that looks super powerful. He sells it for, it looks like it's is it 350 euros a, a, a server. Mm-hmm. So it adds to your per-server cost, but it actually looks super cool. So yeah, I was interested to learn about that too, Angelo. And uh, some of the visualizations look pretty slick, pretty clean. So I think it's a tool for, for folks to, to consider and, and you know look at it. I think it'll help you in the long run. One of the other things we got into on the on the podcast was scripting. And I know, you know, from my sysadmin days, early on, scripting wasn't something that we really it did. It was more of a focus to get 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 stuff done. But closer to the end of my tenure at my my last organization Scripting with PowerShell was something we really got into. It really started helping reducing a lot of the the mundane tasks that we we had to um, do on a daily basis. So we started scripting a lot with PowerShell and especially in a VMware environment, we really started to uh, focus on PowerCLI and that really saved us a lot of time and freed us up to start working on uh, more meaningful, if you will, uh, tasks and things that are more exciting to uh, to a modern-day sysadmin. Angela, were you guys primarily a Windows shop? Yeah, Windows uh, yeah. primarily. PowerShell is so powerful for Windows. I mean, obviously available only on Windows. Even as an old-school Perl guy, I mean, that was my tool of choice back when I was on the command line, right? PowerShell is so cool. The idea that you could pipe these objects back and forth, the, the deep support in Windows, it was fun to see it uh, expand over time, uh, the footprint and the use, usability over in the VMware side. There's a whole group of sysadmins that came up on the command line and are mm-hmm. and were used to scripting, and maybe on the Unix side. I think there's a whole generation maybe who are more Windows-oriented, who, who are just getting, it, getting into scripting. And, Angelo, I just think it's going to be so important for them, for their careers going forward, because programmability, scriptability, automation, orchestration, 
and we could, we don't have really time to get into what all those different things might mean, is going to be so important for your career going forward as uh, as the data center gets more automated. I don't know. Did you feel like people who grew up in the GUI world were a little scared of scripting? Yeah, yeah you're, you're you're right on, John. Um, you know, we we did have a a small set of uh, Linux admins who who spent all their time uh, scripting and, and and things like that, and that sort of started to started to bleed over to some of our uh, Windows admins who saw how that helped um, get tasks done quickly. So a lot of us really started to to hunker down on on PowerShell in particular. Um, and, and sort of expand that. One particular resource that we, we started using was a book called PowerShell in a Month of Lunches. Mm. Um, yeah, pretty good resource. We thought, um, get you up to speed quickly, uh, you know, as well as downloading uh, scripts from other sites, running them in a test environment, tweaking them to, to meet your environment. Those things really, really help, uh, at, you know, at your learning process. Those things really added a lot of value to the, to the overall process. Yeah, I think the VMware PowerShell, PowerCLI community, and in fact, the whole Windows PowerShell community is super helpful that way. They do a lot of code samples. They do a lot of code sharing. It's the one very powerful thing about scripting over, over something like, I mean, writing in C or Java is that usually the script is available and usually the culture is such that you can get code snippets that do a lot and that show you how things are done. And that's certainly that's the way I learned. And just to highlight the next community, there is a section on there uh, for scripting. So, uh, you know, I do encourage folks to to upload any scripts they have or anything they've they think is useful. Uh, so we get start getting a discussion going on the next community around scripting. I know there's um, some scripts linked up to GitHub. Um, so that's, you know, that's pretty interesting. So we really want to uh, encourage that piece and grow that piece. So feel free to jump on the next community and, and, you know, upload your scripts, give us a brief description, uh, what it does, how it works, some output even, and we'll be sure to, to help promote that. You guys are actually dealing with some very powerful automation hooks, uh, on the Nutanix platform too. And I, I guess, our friends at Splunk would probably be uh, annoyed at us if we just talked about Splunk and, uh, and scripting as if that's what you did with Splunk. I mean, Splunk is actually super powerful just as a query and a exploration tool uh, and an alerting tool, actually, even without scripting. So uh, we, <laughs> I'll put in that plug for our, our, our good <laughs> friends at Splunk. Yeah, you bet. Brandon actually shed a lot of light on, on Splunk and, and sort of gave me more insights into the product itself. So that was really great to hear. And we will have more material uh, in the show notes. So if there's um, something we've mentioned, we'll have it uh, links to everything in our show notes that you'll find on the next community. So with that, let's get into the interview. Today on the Nutanix Next Community Podcast, we're delighted to have today a man of many talents, uh, CTP, MVP. Uh, We have Brandon Schell on the line here today talking about automation, big data, uh, some of the work that he's doing at Splunk. Welcome, Brandon, and uh, why don't you start off by telling us uh, what you've been up to over the last couple months, and uh, we'll go from there. Oh, yes, absolutely. I'm glad to be here. Uh, I work at Splunk. Um, I've been working at Splunk now for about four years. Love it there. It's a, it's a great company. In the last year, what I've been doing for Splunk is helping them build what we call technology add-ons, and that's just an easy way of saying data collector. So uh, ways of collecting data from different endpoints, pull it into Splunk so that we're able to create what we would love to call operational intelligence. That's kind of what my goal has been for the last year or so, and making a lot of success there. 
would you kind of say the from a, like what you're doing at Splunk? How much of that is like on the automation side? I know you have a, like you're like a PowerShell guru. Are you, are you taking those skills over to Splunk and applying them, or is it kind of like it's what's used to connect the pieces together? I love PowerShell. I've, I've, I've been using PowerShell since uh, since beta, but I, I don't get to use it as much anymore. Uh, except for I use it as a, uh, I'm actually using it as a development platform now for uh, data collection. As you know, a lot of Microsoft products, Exchange, Active Directory, SCOM, they all use PowerShell in the back end. So I've been doing a lot of PowerShell to collect data points from there. Um, but it's funny, kind of PowerShell is what got me into Splunk to begin with. I was working for a financial company up in New York City and doing a lot of PowerShell stuff. And we had got Splunk, and I was looking for different ways to automate Splunk deployments. And um, I was on Twitter, and I, I just kind of tweeted some questions I had about you know, being able to do some live searches against Splunk. And uh, one of the senior guys at Splunk, uh, I guess he was watching the Twitter feed and uh, responded to me. And we just had some conversations. I'm like, hey, how would you like, like, would you be interested in paying me to write a PowerShell SDK for Splunk? And he was like, yeah. And so uh, that's how I started. I was a contractor for the first uh, nine months to 10 months. And then I, I got hired on in business development to help them um, break into the Citrix industry, uh, virtual desktop industry, from data collection perspective. That's kind of how I got my start there. But that's interesting, Brandon. I always kind of wondered how a CTP goes into to Splunk or how the, the two relate. But I guess that, that makes sense. I think the first time I remember seeing you was at a Bry Forum in Chicago. I don't think you knew who the heck I was, but you were handing out T-shirts that were making fun of Canadians, and I, I thought it was pretty funny anyway. I love I that T-shirt. Yeah. How does Splunk play a role on the, the VDI side? I know there's been some work that involves Splunk with uh, something called the Uber agent that some of our solution and performance team have been using internally. Do you have any insight on that? So Splunk is a, it's a huge product, and it actually has a play in pretty much most business units at, at, a, at a company. Where the core value of Splunk comes into is where you can get to what they call operational intelligence. And what that is, is the way I define it, I mean, there's a lot of different definitions out there, but the way I define it is taking monitoring and alerting and system management, taking that data and making it proactive and making it not only not just a cost, but making it a profit part of your company. So how can I make money or save enough money that the monitoring is not a drain on my company. Uh, and typically, that's the way it, it's viewed, and it is at, a, at corporations. How can I increase my productivity, increase my value in the industry? I know our VP of uh, marketing always says, if you can't monitor it, <laughs> you, you can't get better. You don't know where you're going to, you know, how, how do you know what's going on? So that's, that's, some, that's valuable. Right. When a company has a VDI or a Citrix in desktop or a VMware view environment, right? The reason why they're doing that is because they're trying to make their employees more productive. If they're able to make their employees more productive, they're able to generate more revenue. At least that's the hope. So operational intelligence is getting that monitoring data, making it valuable enough that it has exposure throughout the whole stack of the company so that you can take trends and stuff like that and increase overall revenue based on those metrics. Like, how can I literally make a user more productive? How can I get more value out of my servers? How do I get more value out of my uh, infrastructure? And I think that's where Splunk takes a core role. Citrix, obviously, 
uh, and Zen Desktop and VMware View and Uber Agent, like you were saying, they all play a really core component of that. Because once those data points are in, I can determine capacity planning. How do I best use my server hardware? How do I best use my physical uh, resources so that I can get either more users or be able to do work shifting better so I don't buy a desktop that just sits under someone's desk eight hours a day and then sits there for the other 16 hours a day doing nothing. It sounds, actually kind of sounds daunting to get it all set up and to get all this collecting and monitoring. What's some of the process to even to to get that off the ground? Because I think, I know from a Nutanix value, that's like from a VDI perspective, it's at the end of the day, you want your desktop technicians managing VDI. You don't want your highest paid guys doing it. So what's kind of some of the effort involved? Well, I think the key to success, and, and we've every time I've been involved in any kind of large deployment, this is the way I always approach it. It's have an eye on the goal. You know what you want to achieve, but don't try to achieve it all at once. So you break your project down into core achievable goals and then start doing those goals in, in, in like a building block. Uh, it's just like if you ever go online and see these humongous Lego projects that they put together where you have like a, a f- seven-foot firefly ship that they built. They didn't build it all at once, right? They built it in components and they put the components together. It's the same thing with operational intelligence. You have your eye on the goal, you know what you want, but you you don't go full board right off the bat. You slowly build. It's the only way to really be successful. Yeah. <laughs> it's always easier to deal with smaller smaller pieces of the pie. Um, as one can to attest going through the, the holiday season. <laughs> so how does you know the the insights that Uber Agent feeds into Splunk what do you get out of it from, is it all performance-based or is it going to help you fix problems? So it's a little bit of everything. Primarily, uh, it is almost all performance-based metrics of some sort. Um, it does your standard CPU, memory, disk, data sets, but it'll give it to you um, from the kernel's perspective. So a, a lot of uh, even Microsoft perform- performance counters, stuff like disk IOPS and stuff like that, they don't actually give you disk IOPS. What they do is they give you IOPS, which includes disk and network. So if I really want to see the impact of a disk, I can't necessarily use stuff like Perfmon. You actually have to have, um, I mean, I can see disk IOPS for the entire machine, but I can't see it per process. So what UberAgent does is it allows you to get that data per process. Another really cool feature and that a lot of UberAgent's customers really love is the browser data. So it'll give you per internal process disk network and CPU utilization. So I can see what URLs are taking the most disk, CPU, and memory, uh, and then being able to correlate that across my uh, my environment. So if I have IE taken up a large quantity of processing power or disk or memory across my environment, I can see is it just IE in general or is it a specific URL? I mean, is this everyone surfing you know, YouTube or something like that? So we can get really good perspective on what URLs are taking the uh, most impact on our environment specifically when those URLs are internal, right? So a lot of corporations these days are using internal web apps. They're not actually using um, good old-fashioned 132 apps. They actually use web apps, and then those you use browsers. So if you look at browsers when it comes to, like, uh, Internet Explorer, Chrome, and Firefox, to make it more efficient, they've been parallelizing the processing. But in doing so, they've kind of, to some degree, isolated the data set, so you can't really see what is doing what. Uh, it's kind of obfuscated is actually a better word for that. And uh, what Helga has been able to do is to collect that data at a lower level to be able to give you that information. 
The other part that his customers like are the group policy and log on timings and boot timings. So he can tell you how long it took to log in and in that login, what took so long as far as the login was concerned. And down to the what group policy extensions were processed and how long each one of those took. Wow. I'm going to have to load that up. Anything to get out outside of the event viewer is a win in my books. So, like, Splunk is using or is termed a big data application, I think. And correct me if I'm wrong, because it uses MapReduce. Nutanix uses MapReduce. How do you make that easy for, for people to actually use? Because I'm thinking, now you have all this data sitting in Splunk, but do I have to know how to form my own queries to get that data out or what's available? Because... I think, and probably the problem why big data hasn't taken off or, or whatever you want to call it, I've even actually heard some people call it small data, but whatever the, the use case is, how do you, you know, we don't have data scientists coming out of the woodwork. So, you know, how do we make actually use of it? Once actually, these days we do have them coming out of the woodwork, but uh, I, I get your point. That's one of Splunk's tenets or, or kind of core competencies is trying not only to be able to collect these mass quantities of data, but making them searchable and usable, right? Because if it's not searchable and not usable, what's the point of collecting it? You'll see, and you, this is pretty clear when you look at the last couple of revisions of Splunk, the concept of data models and the concept of pivot and those kind of things. So it actually is almost a drag and drop type search process now. So uh, as long as we use data models, uh, you can go into pivot and you can pull like, I want to see, you know, this metric compared to this metric and then add visualizations and all that stuff. So you don't actually have to get into the, the ooey gooey search language aspect of it. Now, granted, that's not going to work for everything and it's not going to work for everybody, but that's at least the start. And I think that's going forward. Like you said, I think that's one of the, the core problem areas. And I think it's where a lot of, I know Splunk is spending a lot of investment there is trying to make it easier to get to because Having all the data is great, but if you can't search it and use it, it's really just a waste. From a deployment perspective, a lot of big data apps or at least the frameworks, whether they're using Hadoop or or something of that genre, they kind of were born on physical hardware. Obviously, Nutanix is, you know, you have to pick your flavor of uh, hypervisor and away you go. What are your thoughts on Splunk running on, on a hypervisor or, you know, what have you seen in the field uh, on that route? Well, so big data's problem with virtualization has been storage. Primarily, big data is storage sensitive. We obviously always need a lot of CPU and we need memory. Uh, memory probably least of most, least of all, but disk being the most important, CPU being the second, and memory being kind of a distant third. From that perspective, virtualization seems problematic. I know traditionally it's just one of those things that people shy away from because it's hard. Well, I mean, it's not really hard, but it seems hard, right? The, the fact is, is, Splunk virtualizes quite well as long as you understand. If a machine asks for eight cores and 800 IOPS, and you put it on a virtual machine with two cores and 400 IOPS, or even not even 400, 100 IOPS, it's not going to perform the same. So as long as you're, you understand the requirements, then I think virtualizing is not only useful, I think it's a good thing. But you need to understand the requirements, and you need to understand what you're doing. It, it's not like a next, next, next type install. And I think that's where Nutanix kind of did the right thing, is they looked at Splunk as a, as a workload on Nutanix and said, okay, if we were to do this, how can we do it right? And they did the investments to make sure that it worked properly on their platform. 
It isn't like they just went out there and got a virtual machine, threw Splunk on it, and said, hey, here's a product, uh, which would have been a bad plan. I think there's two things, like one from an infrastructure perspective, just getting everyone kind of on the, the same footing um, so you don't have different teams managing um, all sorts of different areas. If you can keep the the, infra, or the hypervisor or infrastructure the same, that's kind of one thing. But uh, then, yeah, Nutangs can handle a lot of ingest, which I think is probably the, the key. I'm not really sure, like, what's an average indexer for Splunk take up to, to make it actually that search work? You know, the numbers have changed over time, but... Our target is always your standard 2U server. So 8 cores, 800 IOPS, 8 gigs of RAM type thing. So nothing super exciting. The last time I looked at the numbers, don't quote me on this, but I think the last time that was per 100 gig of daily index data, which if you're talking about text data, that's a lot of data, (laughs) 100 gigs a day. But there's a whole bunch of reference architectures out there from that perspective and and what it looks like when you want to expand that. I mean, we have... We have customers doing many terabytes a day and, and are able to handle this without a problem. I think our, our reference architecture started off at a terabyte a day and then kind of goes up to whatever crazy, <laughs> I guess, however many nodes you want to add in. Kind of flipping back onto the, the automation side, I think, well, you probably have a unique opportunity with Splunk to get into some big enterprises. You know, Do you see the DevOps movement? Do you see people, do you see a lot of PowerShell still or... Um, there's Puppet Chef. I think Salt is the the new boy on the block. What are you seeing out there? Those are certainly places where Splunk could really provide a lot of value in DevOps specifically. You're seeing a lot of corporations do a lot of internal development these days. They've always kind of done it, but their their development has all been like group specific or or vertical specific. You know, one specific group saying, "Hey, we're going to do this." But I think these days you're seeing a lot more companies actually doing it kind of as the first thing they do, not the not as a secondary, oh, we can't buy this product, so let's just make our own. I think a lot of co- companies uh, are primarily, they're going with the, the mindset of develop first, and if it looks like it, or at least look at development first, and if it doesn't look like it's going to work, then we can look at buying a product. You know, it, it's the it's it's standard trend of the cycle that we see in, in, in the world where you have all the processing power is going to the data center, and then later on you'll see all the processing power going back out to the endpoints. And we're just currently in that cycle where all the power is going back to the data center. But in this case, it's not actually going back to corporate data centers or not corporate data centers in the tradition that we're used to. We're going back into cloud-centric data centers, whether that's private cloud or public cloud is irrelevant. But when you're in a cloud environment and you're in the, you have this elastic environment where you're having to expand and contract and build and deploy servers and resources quickly and automatically, that you have to develop that. That's not something that's a tool you go buy off the shelf. I know VMware has tried to do this, um, and Citrix has tried to do this, and, and they have components that make it easier. But as a general rule, it's just really hard. And that's because every environment's different. And that leads to DevOps. And DevOps needs, um, when you have so many different components, you have physical parts of the components, you have virtual parts of the components, you have all the different layers. When you have all these different layers and, and code that's running in different places, it's good to have a place to, a central logging place to send all that data to, as well as getting metrics and knowing how that performance is working. How is this code working? Is it working efficiently? Do I need to expand and such? Yeah. Have you created your own small small death by a thousand cuts, but haven't noticed it yet? Exactly. Get that, get that trending so, out. 
So Splunk is just like a natural fit for those environments where you can just send all the different components, can just send all their logs to Splunk, and then you're able to correlate those into a central interface that just tells you everything about what's going on. From a DevOps side, if you add in a new server into your environment or a new application, do you guys have like a PowerShell or a different way to get that automatically kicked off? Or Splunk doesn't, not, not specifically anyway. So Splunk can trigger actions uh, and can trigger alerts and such. If a log comes in and it says something specific, you can tell Splunk, hey, when you see this, do, do something about it. But as a general rule, Splunk, the company doesn't want to get into that business because that's custom. It's almost always custom. It's not, generally speaking, something that you want to do. When it gets to actually doing actions, you always got to be super careful about that, right? Because that's where stuff gets broken. <laughs> if, if I'm just reading data and collecting data and allowing you to search and stuff like that, that's relatively safe. You can do that with pretty much any data um, as long as you're able to secure it. But when it comes to triggering actions and doing stuff on that data, that's when it gets hairy. Yeah, it reminds me of uh, pushing out a GPO and wiping out a bunch of desktops uh, in a prior life. Yeah. <laughs> well, on the flip side, have you guys heard of the trend of chat ops? That is uh, using your central chat server to execute commands in, uh, from anyone in the, in the org. You give up some process for visibility. Right, you have a you have a chat log there, and you say you know reboot the servers, change the firewall rule, but it's right there in front of everybody. So that's a different approach to the agility of DevOps. I could definitely see the value in that, but that to me just sounds like super dangerous. <laughs> fair, fair enough, fair enough. I just I pictured in my mind of like seeing a forward button, and like as soon as your boss tells you something, you just you're automatically forwarding to this chat service. Kind of give you perspective, right? So I, I can't say the company, but when I worked at Microsoft, we went to this very, very, very large org, which at the time had the largest Active Directory in the world. And I was there with Microsoft trying to fix uh, this craziness that they had set up. And to give you perspective, they had 500 domain admins. Um, <laughs> wow. And these domain admins were all over the all over the country, and very few of them had any idea of what they were doing. They were domain admins because an executive body said every office has to have a domain admin, and that's just the rule. So a lot of times the domain admin was just whoever the smartest computer person was in the building. What ended up happening is they would delete Sysfall daily. <laughs> so Oh, yeah, you don't want that feeling up. What would end up happening is that they would destroy everything. Like every single day there was like a critical situation where someone out in the field broke it. And that's the problem is that um, in small organizations, something like that might work. But in large organizations, that is just like at, at that co- at that company, like the whole world would end because <laughs> no telling what would happen once those people got into that chat log. I mean, it, just give you, you know, you get in hip chat and people start throwing out emoticons like it's craziness. And just imagine if those were actual commands. Hey, what does this do? Oh, <laughs> that's what it does. <laughs> Actually, I haven't heard of the the chat service, but I'm tempted to look it up now. No, it sounds awesome, but I could just see bad things happening. Lots of bad things happening. Yeah, some some self constraint would definitely be be needed. <laughs> or or a good HR department for firing people. Hey, Brandon, for those um for those IT admins out there that haven't scripted at all, any advice for those folks to start 
jumping into the scripting uh, scripting practice and 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 you know start automating at a maybe at a small level some of the everyday tasks they do you know for me it was just having a project that i had to do the first script i ever wrote was actually at that company i just mentioned i had to make a change on 2300 domain controllers and i was one person right the chances of being able to do that i mean i could do it but it might take me you know two weeks and obviously we didn't have that kind of time so i was kind of thrown in a situation where like it's one of those things actually i used to teach i used to teach to microsoft it you know the ms ms uh, microsoft certified systems engineer mcse classes i used to teach those back in the day and every single class that i would say hey, the first thing i'll need to do is learn how to script but i didn't know how to do it right i always say you need to learn to do it because it's really important but it was one of those things i never learned how to do because i just never had i never had a chance to do it right i never had the opportunity to have to do it and that first experience at that large corporation where I had to do that, it was kind of forced. I learned VBScript in about a week uh, because I had to. And then later on, the way I learned PowerShell was very similar. I had a situation where I had 350 servers that I had to, was running Citrix. This was an earlier version of Citrix where you had to reboot every night or uh, once a week or they'd crash. So I ended up having to write a, a reboot script. And I used, I'm like, well, I got to write this reboot script. I might as well use PowerShell. And that's kind of how I started um, learning, which at that point was called Monad. It wasn't PowerShell, but that's kind of how I started. And I think that's the easiest way to start is to find a project, like make it useful and then just do it. The PowerShell community and, and the Perl and uh, Python community as well. They're all really helpful people. There's lots of information out there. It's real easy to find snippets and, and start off what I call copy-paste coding, uh, where it's just kind of getting other people's code, putting it together, and kind of learning it as you go. Yeah, um, I had a friend uh, mention to me, um, you know, in the 90s they call it scripting, and t- in today's uh, time they call it automation and orchestration. <laughs> mm. So I know you have a ton of um, scripts as well uh, listed on your blog, and I, th- I think uh, you have a, a GitHub repository. You know, I, I, I do. I have some GitHub. I, I think I have some on CodePlex. Honest truth is, is I haven't really kept up with that stuff just simply because it hasn't been. I've been more of a consumer of PowerShell than like actually writing it. You called me an MVP. I'm not an MVP anymore. I lost my, I, I retired my MVP last year simply because I was like not participating in communities anymore and I just didn't think it was fair to take that spot. So when it came to my renewal, I think it was a year ago, I was like, look, I'm not going to request renewal. You need to give my spot to somebody that's actually going to help. So I retired from the program after six years. I think that was my sixth year. But it's just one of those things that I, I still love PowerShell, still use it. I just, uh, I'm not as active as I used to be simply because life changes, um, jobs change. So I just don't have the same chance well, to do it as I used to. Well, still, congrats. That's still a long haul to be to be producing content on a on a regular basis, and you know, trying to find pitfalls before other people do. It's not. I still get so. emails. I still get emails probably like once a week um, <laughs> from people saying, "Hey, I found your code," and I'm like, "Oh man, I haven't touched that in like three years. I don't know what it does." But I, I still try to answer as much as I can. But uh, I'm not near as uh, not near as active as I used to be. I would love to, though. I really love PowerShell. It's a lot of fun. Just a, a giant disclaimer on your blog. Use at your own peril. <laughs> <laughs> it might say that. I, I don't know. It's just, and the other thing is, is I never let my blog become a, 
And maybe that's why I let it go. It's like, it was never an income thing for me. I never did ads. I never did any of that stuff, even though I got many thousands of hits every day. I probably could have made a ton of money on that, but I didn't. So it is what it is. You get what you pay for. <laughs> yeah. I know my blog is more just to find stuff that I've already done and kind of go back and as my own kind of source of truth more than anything. Well, I, I can't tell you how many times I've done that where I'm like, man, I wish I knew how to do this. And I would Google it and I would find an article about myself. <laughs> I'm like, oh, crap, I did do that at some point, didn't I? So, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's funny. Well, with that, thanks for, for coming on today and kind of giving us a background on Splunk and automation. Where can people find you online and maybe get a hold of you? Twitter is probably the easiest way. My Twitter is B-S-O-N-P-O-S-H, B-S on Posh. I still answer all my email from my blog, so you can contact me through my blog, which is bsonposh.com. But primarily, Twitter is the easiest easiest way to get a hold of me. Awesome, guys. Well, thanks, everyone, for, for joining the crew, and uh, we look forward to the, the next recording. All right. Thank you. Bye, guys. Bye. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, at Nutanix. You can also subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. If you'd like to be a guest on the podcast or have a topic idea, email community at Nutanix.com. So with that, I'm Angelo. I'm Laura. And I'm John. Until next time, bye. Hey, Brandon, before we go, I have to give you props for your Firefly slash Lego analogy Uh, for OI. You know, you could take it one step further and say that you only meet your ultimate goal when you achieve serenity. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Love it. That was so awesome. (laughs) Uh, I watched a video the other day of them building and I was like, that's insane.